Welcome to the King of Games 98! On this episode, it's Baldur's Gate versus Ocarina of Time! Welcome back, everybody, to another special episode of the King of Games 98. As we carry on with the run of eight portion of our tournament, my name is Ozzy Garcia, and I will be your host for today. And if you happen to just be tuning in, the King of Games 98 is a very special project that we have been working on for some time, in which we consider 16 of the best games that came out in 1998, which is generally considered one of the best years in gaming. And then we pit them against each other to devour and maul each other to death to see which one <laughs> prevails, because we are very sadistic. Um, and for this fine episode, I am joined by my two other sadistic judges <laughs> and the beautiful snow blanketed tundra of the Yukon. We have our very own man of the wild, Paul Romalo. Hey guys, how's it going? And in the land of clam shouter and asshole quarterbacks, we have Arnaldo <laughs> Perez. <laughs> you didn't have to switch that part up. <laughs> but hi, how's everybody doing? <laughs> Uh, before we get further into this episode, I would like to mention that if you like what you're hearing, as usual, please subscribe uh, to us on the iTunes, Apple podcast thingamajig. <laughs> um, and make sure to let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on iTunes, especially yeah. if you like uh, these types of projects. Um, we have put in a considerable amount of effort into this one. It's been realistically almost a year-long project uh, working on this. So uh, seriously, if you really like what you hear, um, you know, getting that feedback from you is really what makes us, you know, carry on with this project. So uh, even better, if you like uh, what you're hearing, make sure to let others know about our little podcast if you think they will like what we're doing. So the more years we reach, the more we can expand and bring you more content. Yeah. So and, getting um, on to the games. Go honestly, ahead. Before, before we get to the games real quick, I just want to take a moment and thank all the listeners as well for sending in those brackets that we asked oh, yeah. for. Absolutely. Oh, yes. I think we got I think we got roughly a couple dozen and yeah. what can I say, man? It was a lot of fun just getting all the brackets and seeing what everybody voted for. Like that alone almost makes this whole project <laughs> worthwhile. Yeah. And uh, while I'm on that, I would also like to personally thank Arnaldo for destroying <laughs> almost all of those brackets <laughs> by voting for Grim Fandango over StarCraft. It was such a joy for me personally to look at every single bracket <laughs> And see that everybody except for James, Clutch Kitten Gaming podcast, everybody voted for StarCraft. So it brought me endless amounts of joy to just be DMing Arnaldo and saying, hey man, you see that bracket? Hey man, you see that bracket? Oh, thank you everybody. And thank you Listen, Arnaldo. It's not easy rigging this whole thing so I win the bracket contest, uh, but I have to do my part. Uh, but Paul, is it really a bracket busting if everyone's bracket was busted? Uh, no, we're I, gonna have to sort of like we're just gonna have to give everybody a pass on that one because like who could have who could have seen that one coming? That's like you know what? It, give me a town in in the USA, like a really small town. Like I don't know if there was a place called Middlesex. So you have Middlesex Community College beating the University of Michigan. <laughs> Like, that's basically what happened. Yeah, this is basically like Hoosiers, essentially. Yeah. yeah, just, yeah. Just, edit, just edit my voice out at the end where I say Grim Fandango and just put like, Starcraft. 
<laughs> Full disclosure, I haven't talked to Arnie since this uh, episode, up until this episode. We just started talking again because I didn't want to yeah. address him ever since. So, <laughs> yeah. Actively I, ignoring me. I briefly consider renouncing in protest after that uh, result, but uh, here I am. <laughs> you got to carry on, even though you don't like the results. Uh, yep. So, uh, with that out of the way, let's uh, talk about the games. Uh, really, at this point, these are all juggernauts, besides Grim Fandango. Um, actually, no, Grim Fandango is great, but we'll get on to that whenever it gets its due and I get to talk about how it destroyed the I adventure know. genre. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, these are all top-notch games. They have arrived here on their very own merit. And on this episode, in particular, uh, we have Baldur's Gate uh, going mm. up against the very much juggernaut that is is the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. So to recap, on the previous round, Baldur's Gate uh, just squeaked out a win against the very enjoyable and very memorable Tekken 3, uh, mainly on the shoulders of its considerable influence in the RPG genre. Uh, I think I was one of the supporters of that game in you know, letting it advance because I thought that it really had a huge influence on how RPGs and games as a whole uh, treated their narrative uh, choices. So in the case of Ocarina of Time, uh, it took down Resident Evil 2, and I think you guys would agree that that was one of the you know, more surprising matchups and with yeah. the potential to really deliver an upset because a lot of people have a lot of love out there for Resident Evil 2. Uh, it just mm -hmm. had a remake last year, and it was very well received, and it shows that people still very much love Resident Evil 2, uh, but you know, alas, uh, it wasn't enough to really uh, take down Ocarina of Time, which is one of the you know, huge, legendary, uh, no pun intended, games of, uh, <laughs> you know, all time, really. Yeah. yeah. So, but now these two are going against each other and only one can prevail. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, who is the underdog here? Uh, I mean, I think you guys pretty much know, but uh, as <laughs> a reminder... there's an ending gate, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as a reminder, the criteria we will be considering is, first of all, the personal attachment, you know, which means mm. how we each feel about the games, um, what our experience was with it, how we came to know about it, and uh, just basically, you know, what our personal thoughts are on the game. Uh, mm -hmm. The sales and critical reception each game had, uh, this is one of the more contentious uh, components of this criteria because people don't like to rely on this metrics, but hey, in this uh, tournament, we are using it. Um, yeah. And it's not necessarily overriding, but it's certainly one of the factors that we're considering. We make the rules uh, around here, buddy. Yep, and you just have to take it. Um, uh, then we're also looking at the respective impacts on the genre and their overall legacy, which are, mm. they used to be separate uh, factors, but we just kind of amalgamated them into a juggernaut of influence. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, we just take a look at these games going head-to-head -head against each other and see which one survives uh, best and which one has stood the test of time. Um, so as you clearly have seen, a lot of this is very subjective, Grim Fandango. Um, and though we like to think so, it is not scientific at all. So don't get too mad at us or hate <laughs> us if we don't pick one of your favorites, StarCraft. Uh, <laughs> So let's just get a teletype here. So mm -hmm. Baldur's Gate was released at the tail end of 1998 on, guess what, Paul? Guess what, Arnie? December 21, 1998, which uh, happens to be the exact same day that we are recording this episode. Oh, so, guess what? Right. Happy 21st birthday, Baldur's Gate. Yay. You can drink in the US now. <laughs> 
So it was developed by Bioware and Black Isle Studios, which were uh, really influential developers at the time. Yeah. And uh, it was an isometric RPG based on the Dungeons and Dragons Forgotten Realms campaign. So pretty big day for Baldur's Gate. Uh, mm -hmm. So will that be enough to get it over Ocarina of Time? <laughs> we will see. <laughs> Uh, as for Ocarina, it was released in very, various parts of the world in November and December of 1998, which was just in time for kids to get the game for Christmas of 1998 and have one yep. of those unboxing videos where the kid <laughs> goes nuts as he opens it up and it's Zelda! Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure one of those <laughs> is out there coming? on YouTube. <laughs> Um, so it was developed by Nintendo, uh, big surprise, and uh, it was yeah. the first Zelda to go 3D. I mean, I don't think this game needs a lot of introduction because pretty much everyone knows what Zelda is. Um, and so with that out of the way, let us get into the ring. Uh, Paul, you were not on the first round episode for each of these games, uh, but let's start with Baldur's Gate. What is your experience with this game? Well, my experience was almost exactly what the developers and publisher Interplay intended which is that now to be fair I was I was working at a video game store at the time so I I just knew more on a day-to-day -day basis about video games than I know now okay fair mm -hmm. enough so Baldur's Gate was always on the radar but it wasn't a game that I pre-ordered it wasn't a game that I had really kind of heard about beforehand it was a game that showed up on the shelf and as the months went by more and more people started buying it and not only were people buying it, people were excited about it. You know what I mean? It wasn't like parents coming in and buying a game for their kid. It was your kind of typical computer RPG player coming in and very excitedly purchasing Baldur's Gate. So I didn't play it on release. And, you know, according to the sales numbers, not that many people did either. Don't, don't get me wrong. It sold very well on release. It sold better than expectations, but it wasn't the juggernaut that it eventually became. So when I did play it, it was probably a couple years later. Um, I had started playing uh, Planescape Torment was the first game that I actually played using that engine. Oh, and then yeah. I went back and played Baldur's Gate, the OG, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I after playing Torment, I already had an idea of what to expect. And even with that said, it didn't diminish the quality. Baldur's Gate is just an it's an excellent game. There's just no, there's no getting around it. You know, it's got great storytelling, great, you know, background, great lore. It borrows from Forgotten Realms. So, you know, you already have kind of a template set up there, a kind of baseline of quality, if you will. And it uses that battle engine, the pause and play, which I had never tried before Torment. I don't know, man. It's a great game. What can you say? Well, I mean, I, I find it very interesting that for this, uh, particular project that in 1998 you were working at a game store so you got to see firsthand what the sales reception was for each of these games yeah um, so i i imagine that you know for some of those games it was much more considerable than others because games like Baldur's gate as you have just mentioned they really gained traction through word of mouth it really was not a juggernaut at first i don't think it ever really did become a juggernaut but eventually it ended up selling over two million copies mm -hmm. but Interplay didn't really expect anything out of this game. No. Uh, they, they were just kind of putting it out there, you know, hoping that it would sell and just make back its money. Uh, but, you know, lo and behold, it really gained a lot of traction, even though it started out quite slow. And uh, I think but, that's, I think that's almost, I, I don't want to say it's by design, right? Because in an ideal world, Interplay sells a million copies week one, right? Mm. But this is the first game that 
that I can think of where it kind of harnessed the power of the internet and the social aspect of it to kind of get the word out. Because you had the developers online before the game was even released. Because you do have a whole bunch of people who want a new D&D game, right? Like D&D is a known quality at this point. Mm -hmm. And so you have the developers online kind of taking people through and saying, hey, this is where we are in the process. This is going to be a really cool thing about the game. Do you guys have any questions? Do you guys have any suggestions? They're out there on on Usenet you know, communicating with everyone in a way that just wasn't done before. So I think that was really instrumental in just kind of slowly getting that word out and and building up the popularity of the game. It's a really cool story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that word of mouth still remains one of the very best drivers of sales. Mm-hmm. And we still see it nowadays. I mean, just last year, we had the release of Disco Elysium. And that's another game that is in the isometric vein and really had no marketing behind it at all. Mm-hmm. But eventually it just got started getting traction and people started seeing, okay, well, this is a really interesting game that hasn't done, you know, the same thing as has been done before. And it's trying yeah. to bring in something new. And that's kind of how Baldur's Gate kind of built this traction as well. And, you know, it wasn't for everyone. I don't think a game like Baldur's Gate can really be for everyone. It's not no. designed to be that way. It's a, it's an inaccessible game at first. You really have to put in a lot of effort in order to, you know, really get into it. So yeah. in that sense, it's the complete diametric opposite of Ocarina of Time. Ocarina of Time tries to facilitate the entry into it, whereas Baldur's Gate just, you know, basically throws you into the deep end and says, hey, Try to swim. Um, so it's a very interesting contrast. So, but before we get into the matchup itself, uh, Arnie, what is your experience with Baldur's Gate? You were fairly young at the time, so yes. I imagine you didn't play it originally unless you were a, a six-year-old wonderkind. Yeah, I was not a, a, a RPG savant at that time. Um, and it's it's kind of like what you said, right? Like Baldur's Gate is sort of, at the age I was, Baldur's Gate is the game that, like, your older cousin plays or your older brother plays. Mm -hmm. Like, because they have the nice PC and they can run it. And Ocarina is sort of the game that you get because you play N64 and it's much easier to get into and yada, yada, yada. We'll get into it. Um, But Baldur's Gate, my experience with Baldur's Gate, very limited. Uh, like Paul, I think I played Torment first, like years later, um, because I'd heard so much about it and how cool it was. And I've had like, I've played Baldur's Gate in a very limited capacity, but I really enjoyed what I did play of it. It's like Ozzy was saying, it's difficult to sort of get into initially, but when you do get into it, there's so much depth in that game that it really rewards like patience. It really rewards sort of digging into every little nook and cranny of that world. Um, so that's, that, that was me is like, I've sort of dipped my toe, but never jumped in the pool per se. Yeah. Yeah, And it's not tedious to explore either. Like, yeah, you're, you're very well rewarded for exploring. (laughs) It's not linear, right? You could explore somewhere Mm -hmm. and just get decimated. And that's (laughs) actually cool. It sounds awful, but it is really cool. Anyway, I digress. But I guess that's one of the things that I want to mention about this game It's just, Mm -hmm. It's inaccessibility cannot be disregarded. I I think that needs to be taken into account when talking about this. I think ever since this game was released, we have seen developers try to streamline the process. I think Mm -hmm. the hardcore fans have really had an issue with that because they want their full min-maxing spreadsheet, you know, full bore, full weight experience. 
but <laughs> making it hot on here, Aussie spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yes. Um, and I think that that's fine uh, for a very particular niche, but I think there's something to be said for you know making games accessible. And yeah, we might have different opinions about this, but I think you don't need you know to dumb down the experience to make a game accessible. Mm-hmm. I think that there are, as we have seen, more elegant ways to present a, a, a very deep and complex uh, game and mm-hmm. mechanics. And I think at the very outset, Baldur's Gate was just trying to give you a lot of choice and was trying to give you a very, very complex set of systems mm-hmm. um, that eventually we found could actually be streamlined and could actually be presented in a way that players could get into it without basically having to earn a PhD. Um, (laughs) So I don't know how you guys, you know, feel about that statement, but um, I I do feel like people put its inaccessibility as a positive, whereas I'm a little bit more ambivalent about it. And that kind of goes to my experience, which is that I played it because you know, I wanted to see what this influential game was about. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie, I completely bounced off it. I, yeah. I thought, I, I just do not have the patience mm-hmm. because I don't have the time anymore to really learn this game inside and out just to yeah. get the story. And Part of the I, problem... Sorry, Ozzy, sorry. Go, go ahead. I was going to no, say, no, part ahead. of the problem is the Dungeons & Dragons rules themselves. When yeah. you're talking about streamlining something... <clears throat> You can start with AD&D 2nd Edition. It's brutal. And yeah. they, years over the years since then, you know, Wizards of the Coast, TSR, whoever owns the license at whichever point in time, mm-hmm. they've done a pretty good job of streamlining it, making it more accessible. But at that time, AD&D 2nd Edition, man, I remember looking at those books as a kid <laughs> for the first time and being like, what the fuck? Like, this is... Thaco to hit armor class what what is going on here right like i mean yeah you do understand it eventually but to call it accessible is is a joke no it 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 is absolutely not and i think that this games expect a certain baseline of knowledge about Mm. D before you start playing it and and that is not understood you know through modern game convention, game mm-hmm. design convention to be an ideal way to create a game. I, yeah. I think that games nowadays really try to walk you through their mechanics. They try to walk mm-hmm. you through what you can and cannot do. It's rule set. Whereas Baldur's Gate just assumes that you have a certain knowledge of the rules itself. And that's perhaps why I did not go further into it because I knew that I would have to read an FAQ. I knew <laughs> that I would have to seek out a guide in order to really get farther into it. And so every time I try to play these games, I try to just go based on common sense, and common sense always gets me destroyed. Um, And (laughs) I think that's also a a point about the freedom of the games. I I think that there's a little bit of an illusion of freedom in these games, because you think that you can go anywhere, but you really can't. Mm -hmm. You're going to get decimated if you do. And so it's kind of an illusion because it kind of walks you through the progressive leveling that you need to be doing. Um, and so I think in theory, there is freedom, but in practice, it's not quite there. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys feel that that's a correct statement. Like I, I agree to a point, right? What I, what I like about that 
illusion of freedom is that it gives you something to strive for. So, for example, you know, putting Baldur's Gate aside for a second, uh, for a second, I'll give you a more contemporary example: Final Fantasy XV, which I know mm-hmm. you know everybody poops on, but whatever. <laughs> so, there's a section I think in the first act where you can go into some mines. And there's, I can't remember exactly what the enemy was called. We'll just call it a lich. It was some kind of Mm -hmm. like undead lord of some sort. It was like level 50. And I got wasted, destroyed by it. I thought it was great that that was even in there. Because for the rest of the game, I kept thinking, I'm going to go kill that asshole. I can't (laughs) wait to go kill that guy. I know he's there. I know he's waiting. He embarrassed me. Like, and it was, and half of my game was spent just like, <laughs> I wonder when I can take him on. I wonder when yeah. I can take him on. And I'd go back and I'd poke at him. You know what I mean? Like, so yes, I could never beat that guy at the beginning of the game. I didn't have the freedom necessarily to advance further in that mine, mm-hmm. but it gave me something that I could think about for the rest of the game, a goal that I could progress towards. And, you know, kind of, and I mean, I don't know if anybody else does this, but like, and I know that these are just like, you know, computer enemies and so on, but yeah. I make it so personal. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I hated that guy. And I, I have knew very he hated many me. grudges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, and, I, and again, I know he doesn't, but he totally does. Like, he hates my family. He hates everything I stand for. He's well, probably what is a communist. <laughs> what is role playing if it's not, you know, really getting into the role yeah. and giving an identity to your enemies he probably raped and pillaged your town essentially i totally did man like my wife's not safe from that guy (laughs) i guess an asshole um (laughs) i think i think that's the beauty of something like Baldur's gate and a lot of these you know not just computer rpgs but a lot of these computer rpgs from this time that had that sort of D D foundation is that it really is accessible for you to sort of role play into it like it gives you a lot of a lot of freedom to sort of create your own story your own like goals that you can strive for where something like ocarina is sort of very simple and it's like here's the story here's the characters you're this guy like everything's very defined for you and you sort of play out the story as it was originally designed yeah this this is a very true rpg to its very core you really mm-hmm. are inhabiting a character in its every yeah. sense and a lot of it is what you put into it yes you have a certain identity that is provided to you by the narrative mm-hmm. but what you bring into that identity is just as acceptable as what the writers are providing you mm-hmm. it really is you know up to your own making and in that sense it's very much a, a uh, an extension of the Dungeons and Dragons rules. Yeah. Um, so, and, but, you know, I think, Paul, to your example, I think this was something that was not necessarily done that much at the time in terms of giving you that freedom, as you had mentioned. Yeah. I think it was very much done in the 1980s where you had those very deep and complex games like <laughs> Ultima. Um, but I, I think that nowadays, you take a look at a game like Octopath Traveler. It does give you that freedom. You can go around the world without getting destroyed, but you have certain areas within that world that you know are high-level areas. Mm -hmm. I think that's a better way of presenting that freedom because you do have true freedom, but there is that tantalizing character of being able to go into this high-level area and Mm -hmm. take down that enemy. I think that's a better way to present that freedom rather than just... 
this is the path that you're supposed to follow. And if you stray from it, you're going to get destroyed. Um, I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Mm. I think you're saying the same thing, dude. You know, because like even an Octopath Traveler, this is the path you should take. And if you go to that high level area, you're going to get destroyed, right? Uh, In a way. (laughs) In in a way. You can actually do, (laughs) you can actually get farther into the game without going through that high level area through different paths. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Um, But let's take down Baldur's Gate for a moment and talk about Ocarina of Time because, Paul, I'd imagine that the experience that you had at retail with Ocarina of Time was completely different from the one that you had with Baldur's Gate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Ocarina of Time was one Nobody of the first bought it. games. Uh, we're selling. <laughs> you should have seen the cobwebs away. around that section. <laughs> the Zelda section. Um, no, it's one of the first games I remember where the pre-order drive was just gigantic. Um, part of it was because of the gold box and the gold cartridge, which, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays that kind of thing is a staple and it's almost quaint, the the gold cartridge and the gold box by comparison. But the mm-hmm. pre-order drive was huge and there were tons of people buying it when it was first released. So, you know, I mean, yeah, it was it was extremely popular. It was absolutely a system seller. It was absolutely the most anticipated game of the year. And because I was, I think, 19 at the time, I was, you know, my my hipster sense was like, ah, come on, it's overrated, (laughs) whatever, Zelda, who cares? Uh, But yeah, no, it was at sales, man, it was it was gigantic. What was your experience that year with Nintendo 64? Had that year, had you seen a lot of movement on the Nintendo 64? Because... As we all know, the Nintendo 64 did not have a ton of games. So what was your experience at retail up to that point that year with the Nintendo 64? Uh, Bafflement at its success. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I had no idea why it was so popular. I mean, again, like I was sort of like the gaming hipster. I mean, I still kind of am now, but yeah, I, I just look there were a lot of there were a lot of families buying it there were a lot of kids buying it mm-hmm. and i just couldn't identify with that so to me it was baffling why everybody wouldn't just straight up go playstation but i mean that was that was born sort of anecdotally you know from my experience which was that you had a lot of adults buying metal gear solid that season and then there were a lot of kids buying ocarina of time and turok and so mm-hmm. on and so forth so you know, you baffling f- to me, but in <clears throat> retrospect, makes perfect sense. Do you find that a lot of parents were buying Ocarina of Time? Do you see it, this, you know, retail drive, you know, from parents? Like, that was the game to get for Christmas? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. That was that was the N64 game, bar none. Mm-hmm. It was all anybody ever talked about. I mean, it was also the only N64 game, you know. Also that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Artie, what about you, man? I mean, again, you were quite young, so you probably, you know, got to this game a few years down the line. Um, okay. I'm gonna be honest. I when we decided to do this, this was the game that I was most dreading talking about because, oh. well, it's in the sense that, like, what more can you really say about it, right? Like, everybody's said everything about this game, and it's so big, and it's so, you know, such a phenomenon that it's like difficult to find anything interesting about it because I've, I've already heard it um more to my experience with it i i didn't play it on release but i played it 
Um, well, I shouldn't say I played it. I sort of experienced it shortly thereafter. I had a neighbor kid who I would go over to his house. He was like a couple years older than me and he would play it all the time. So I was Mm, sort of that kid that would sit and watch him play it. Um, and I will say like when I was a kid and I saw it and I saw him playing it, I was absorbed. Like I was like, I loved it. Um, but I never owned it as a kid. Like, I never bought it for myself. I was never inclined to get it for myself. I don't know why. I think it just never... It was never... It was always something that I enjoyed watching, but I was never... I never thought, like, oh, this is the one that I want, you know? Um, I think it yeah, helps that my Nintendo 64 didn't get as much playtime as my PS1 did. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that I, I think that this is one of the aspects that is more difficult about this next round which is mm-hmm. that a lot of people expect certain games to just dominate and yeah. i know even on the first episode that we released when we announced the bracket um i think that people expected you know that all of this was just going to be so that ocarina of time would succeed <laughs> and you know it's not that we want to go against the grain but we kind of want to give these games their proper due on their very own merits and see them from a different perspective if possible. And I think that's just a little bit hard with respect to Ocarina of Time. Yeah. More Uh, more than anything, I I wanted this to be a chance for me to talk about or us to talk about all these games, right? Yeah. Yeah. The winner's going to win, the loser's going to lose. That's fine. And it's fun and I'm enjoying like doing this format. But for me, it was like, now I get an opportunity to talk about Baldur's Gate. Would I have gotten that opportunity otherwise? Probably not. I mean, maybe. Eventually. But who, yeah, <laughs> Eventually, but who knows, yeah. right? Um, so it's just it's fun. It's not really like, about who wins. I think that's what we're trying yeah. to get at. It's just the, the, the winner is not necessarily the point. It's exactly. really exploring these games. And I think, again, I mean, I, I was on this two episodes, you know, with mm. respect to Baldur's Gate and Ocarina, but I'm just going to state my experience with Ocarina. I, mm. I did not... I, I never cared for Ocarina. I think it was okay. the fogginess of it all. I think mm-hmm. it was the simplicity that I saw in the Nintendo 64 graphics compared to the PS1. Mm-hmm. I was always a PlayStation kid. And I just felt that that's the type of experience that I wanted. And, you know, I would see people just stouting their Ocarina. And it, it was like the only game that they could really talk about. Um, and... You know, because you were sold into the system, because that was a system that you had, you kind of had to hype it up. You had to hype up the games that you were playing because you didn't really have a choice of playing Metal Gear or Final Fantasy VII or VIII. Yeah. Um, so it just kind of got tiring after a little bit that that was, you know, the kid with a Nintendo 64, you know, that was all <laughs> they could talk about. Um, but, Paul, I just want to, you know, ask you before we break, you know, after you eventually played it and you overcame your hipster uh, face, what did you actually think of Ocarina? It's it's a kind of complicated question because, look, objectively, I could see exactly why it was so beloved. It smacks you in the face right at that title screen. You know what I mean? Like, you have the piano, you have Link riding across on the horse. It is a fantastic intro. And mm-hmm. I was like, and just seeing that intro screen, I was like, oh man, this is probably going to be the real deal. And I played it, and again, I could see why it was so popular. I did not get through the game. You know, I made it to Hyrule Field, and mm-hmm. I was exploring, and that was all well and good. But it just didn't grip me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's one of those things where I can appreciate it, especially 
especially after having played and enjoyed Breath of the Wild. Because Breath of the Wild, you can see how it takes so much from Ocarina. And Breath of the Wild, yeah, that I played all the way through, and I really, really enjoyed it. So I don't even really know exactly what it is about Ocarina that didn't grab me, but mm. with Breath of the Wild being such a similar game, it's just very interesting that it did. In any case, because of that experience with Breath of the Wild, I could see why Ocarina was so good and so beloved. I was impressed by it. It just didn't grab me. Yeah. What about I, you, Arnie? I had, a, I had a similar experience to Paul in that when I finally did play it, I enjoyed what I played, but I never saw it all the way through. I sort of... And it wasn't because I got tired of it or I wasn't enjoying myself, but it was one of those where I started playing it and then I just dropped it for one reason or another and I just never came back to it. I have been meaning to try to get the 3DS version because I've been wanting to finally get it off my list, essentially. Sure. Um, but that that first moment when I played it on the N64, there's I think, you know, my opinion, there's no doubt that Nintendo made something special. Um, like... It's it's this is a game that I think most people would agree is is good. Like it's enjoyable, it's fun to play, but it just didn't grab me like other games I've played before have. Yeah, and I think that's also my experience, but I will also just to go to bat for it, mm-hmm. say that it is a game that, you know, whenever you let it kind of absorb you and let mm-hmm. it sink into you, it becomes very engrossing. Yeah. It's a game that requires a, a kind of state of curiosity in order to advance. It's not necessarily a game that gives you all the answers right away. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of have to poke around in order to advance. I mean, even at the beginning, you kind of have to figure out how to get into, you know, the Hyrule Forest and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, the Lost Forest, I don't remember what it's called. Um, and it really rewards that kind of shouthood wonder in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a testament to its, you know, design that kids that were probably 10, 11, 12 at the time really hold it in such high esteem because it, it really gave you that sense of adventure that a game like Baldur's Gate would provide to someone older, yep. you know, at, a, at an age that you were not necessarily you did not have the capacity necessarily in order to learn, you know, a complex game. And so in that sense, it distilled a very, you know, very broad and epic experience into a very accessible format. Yeah. So I, I think there's merit to that. And I think that when you look at this game 21 years later, it's it's a little bit harder to kind of appreciate it on its own. I mean, mm-hmm. you can appreciate it in a detached sense, I think. But if you're coming at it without nostalgia, it becomes just a little bit harder to really get into the game. And I think that's been my experience and from the sounds of it, also your experience. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that Ocarina is the game that if you really get into it and you really enjoyed it when it came out, maybe later on down the road makes you want to play a game like Baldur's Gate. Possibly. I, I don't necessarily... You know, it's interesting because with these two games, we're seeing the two ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. In one sense, we are seeing the PC crowd or master race, as they call them, <laughs> in, in the sense that you're getting such a, a deep experience, you know, in a very, as we have said, 
cryptic package. Mm -hmm. And on the other, you have the streamlined console experience. Mm -hmm. So really, these are two opposites in every sense. And they kind of embody the two different experiences that you had at the time. You had yeah. a very different experience if you were playing in a PC rather than a Nintendo 64 at the time. And mm -hmm. I think that's why these two are, are very much uh, interesting studies in contrast yeah. in that sense. But before we get any further, let's just take a break and then we'll come back with the other criteria and uh, let's see how they stack up against each other. everybody and we are back and let's talk about the very contentious metric that we talk about uh, in this matches and that's reception so we are going to be talking about how these games did sales wise and how they were received critically mm. and I think we've already touched upon it a little bit uh, Baldur's Gate the initial forecasts were quite low zero uh, sales were predicted in Britain that's something that we talked about on the last episode I don't know how you can say that I a game is going to have zero <laughs> sales in a massive market I'm, like Britain. I'm so glad you brought that up because when I read that yesterday, I thought I was going insane. I was like, I, that, I, I don't know. I, I, I hope the person that predicted that was promptly fired and never got a job predicting anything I, ever I, I want to feel that like whoever that person's like friend or coworkers were already planned to buy one just to piss him off <laughs> <laughs> just to get him fired <laughs> yes of course uh but no eventually it gained traction as we mentioned it eventually surpassed 2.2 million sales um in the case of ocarina of time i mean what more can we say i mean it yeah sold 2.5 million copies in 39 days i mean it overcame <laughs> Jesus. Good <God>. baldur's gate <laughs> By three hundred thousand in thirty nine days, what Baldur's Gate did in, <laughs> in four years, Jesus. essentially. So this is like mowing down. If this was the only metric, I mean, Baldur's Gate would probably be a, a you know a mush on the underside of yeah. Ocarina of Time. I, I will say on that, just a quick note. I want to see if you guys uh, agree with me. Is that I've another thing another like byproduct of doing this is that we've gotten to talk a lot about PC games which I've also very much enjoyed um but I think because the I think the sales numbers for like something that was on PC need to be looked at a little bit differently than console game numbers Are you talking about pirating? Uh not just pirating but I think like in order to run games and run them well, sometimes you had to have like certain types of computers. Computers are just generally more expensive than consoles. And so it, I think it's easier for more homes to own a console than it necessarily is for more homes to own a computer that's capable oh, of running some of these I games. I could, that, be, wrong. Yeah, I could I be wrong. Yeah, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Yeah, Baldur's Gate wasn't exactly a technical powerhouse either. The system okay. requirements weren't terribly onerous. Okay. 
um and and pcs were ubiquitous by then mm. you know i, I so yeah. i'm not going to sit here and say everybody had one but yeah it wasn't like the 80s where pcs were a commodity essentially yes. they were yes. super expensive and yeah. you know they could run the games but they were pretty much seen as workstations mm-hmm. yeah exactly now with that said i mean that whole part of it is offset by the pirating like you said yeah. because there must have been millions of copies of Baldur's Gate out there that were not acquired legally the bottom line is PC sales numbers who the heck knows right yeah. like all we can all we can do is look at you know kind of what was the best PC selling or best selling PC game that year mm. and what was the best selling N64 game that year or PlayStation and just kind of scale accordingly yeah you know well I think with, I think Zelda is the scale in that case yeah, I think you're right. And you know what? Baldur's Gate did just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you also have to take into account that the pirating was not only huge in the sense of, you know, the sales that it took away from, but also in the fact that were it not for pirating, some of the schemes would not have reached certain markets at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, in a place like Eastern Europe, you had to pirate the games in order to play it. And so... We have to factor in that pirating may actually be a positive because, mm-hmm. you know, studios like CD Projekt Red, who eventually ended up developing The Witcher, the only way that they could play something like Baldur's Gate and be influenced to eventually create The Witcher was to pirate it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you, I don't, I'm not going to say that you have to <laughs> tack on the sales of more successful games like The Witcher 3. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, could we have had a game like The Witcher 3 without Baldur's Gate? And I think that the pirating really was an instrumental component of getting that experience across to markets that would not otherwise have received it because they did not have that retail presence. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a complex issue, right? It, yeah. it really is. Because if I'm a publisher, I'm thinking pirating, that's the worst. And yeah. you have mathematical figures to show you why. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like I remember reading about uh, Star Siege Tribes, which I seem to mention now every single episode that we're doing in 1998. <laughs> but I remember reading an interview with the guys who were responsible for the copy protection on it. The copy protection on Tribes was awful. There, there virtually mm. was no copy protection. And in inter- and in the interviews with these guys, they're like, "Yeah, that was by design. We needed this game pirated. We were up against Quake Two. We were up against Half Life. We were up against, you know, Unreal." we needed to just get this game out into as many hands as possible so that they could tell their friends and hopefully, you know, sell more copies of the game. Mm -hmm. Because if that didn't happen, that game was not going to sell. Yeah, Yeah. and let me just to reaffirm what I just said, CD Projekt Red actually began, you know, by contacting Bioware and Interplay to localize Baldur's Gate. Because, so... You know, again, they could only have gotten this game, you know, probably through pirating. And then they said, look, you know, we really love this game. We want to bring it to more people in Poland. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. They localized it. They added Polish actors to voice their characters. And eventually it shipped 18,000 units in Poland. So this was significant. So Mm -hmm. you have to take into account that experience when we talk about Barter's Gate that you know, the Nintendo 64 was great, but, you know, people in Poland did not necessarily have a Nintendo 64. They mm-hmm. may have had a PC. And yeah. and that made it more accessible to a much broader audience, paradoxically enough, than probably Zelda. 
Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it in makes conclusion, sense. the Region for Gamers podcast advocate for piracy. <laughs> I, I disavow that statement. Um, I respectfully <laughs> dissent. Our official position on piracy is it's complicated. <laughs> exactly. Anyhow, yeah. uh, what about uh, what but, about review scores and so on? Yeah, no review scores. I mean, they were they were good. I mean, it holds a Metacritic of ninety one, as we mentioned, and PC Gamer said that it reigns supreme over every RPG out there. So, name best RPG by PC Gamer, Gamespot, IGN. Mm. You know, all the publications that were reviewing uh, PC games at the time had you know sterling scores for it. So mm-hmm. it was very well received. Um, I don't think you would necessarily see publications like GamePro reviewing this game. I don't think yeah. this was something that GamePro was quite interested in. Um, if they Thank had, you know. they would have probably mentioned something like, oh, the graphics are so outdated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or something ridiculous and stupid like that, because we, we love GamePro. They were kind of like... I don't know. I don't want to make a comparison you, of what GamePro was like. On, you don't want to cry on the episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if we look at Ocarina of Time, I mean... The critical reception of Ocarina of Time was huge. I mean, yeah. for a long time, it was the best reviewed game of all time. Yeah. I mean, this was the game that EGM gave perfect scores to. This was the game that mm-hmm. broke the 10 point scales. Everyone yeah. was handing out 10 points left and right. Yeah. And we have talked about the Nintendo Bomb quite a bit. And I think that this was, you know, the previous episode, that was the one where we talked about the Nintendo Bomb with respect to Ocarina of Time. And I think that. There is quite a bit of score inflation with respect to Ocarina of Time. Leave no doubt, this was and is a fantastic game, but Mm -hmm. it still has a sense of this is probably a little bit high, you know, in hindsight. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that, Paul? Uh, Not entirely. I I want to very badly because I do believe in the Nintendo bump. It it is a fact. You know, this is objective. Let's not kid ourselves. (laughs) But with that said, like... Dude, the game is so groundbreaking. And just by virtue of the fact that, you know, what, like every AAA third person adventure game has cribbed from it, you know, over the past 20 years, nothing like it was done before. Like it, it solved the entire third dimension. Like up until that point, developers just, I'm not going to say they had no idea what to do with 3D, but like, ocarina solved so many issues so simply and elegantly like man oh man it does it deserve tens across the board maybe not but does it deserve to be you know considered the quote-unquote best game that year and perhaps the best game ever yeah probably spoilers spoilers (laughs) well hey that doesn't mean i'm gonna vote for it like i said i only played it for you know five six seven hours and then i lost interest yeah and as we've seen for example with i don't know starcraft and grim fandango crazy crazy (laughs) shit can happen here (laughs) but i think that you're you're right in the sense of the mechanics that it created i think the c-axis targeting was huge because it before that action games were kind of sloppy in the way that they targeted you had this mm-hmm. you know system whereby you know you kind of had to go on on faith that you were going to target the right enemy and more often than not you wouldn't and it would just yeah. kind of be a crapshoot there was a, a degree of you know sloppiness to the whole thing and mm-hmm. with Zelda it just kind of allowed you through the c axis targeting to 
really step into the shoes in a way of the character itself and the avatar that you're playing as and kind of see from their perspective. And I think this was a precursor to the over-the-shoulder camera that we would eventually see. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's something that we eventually started, you know, seeing as a commonplace mechanic in other games. And I think even subconsciously, it really influenced a lot of developers that would eventually you know, be making their own games. Yeah. Um, also something like day and night cycles, you know, that was not mm-hmm. standard at all at the time, but this game had it, you know, and the idea that depending upon the time of day, you are going to have a different experience. The environmental factors will differ. Mm-hmm. You know, that was also something that was very interesting and dynamic for its time. So Arnie, I don't know how you feel about that, but I would like to get your thoughts on it. In terms of the critical reception for Ocarina? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, I'm going to agree with most of what you guys are saying. Like, like you guys, I think that Ocarina is fantastic. I think that it deserves the some of the praise that it gets. Like, do I personally think it's the greatest game of all time? No. But is it one of the greatest games? Yes. It was very groundbreaking it laid the foundation for a lot of the stuff that we saw come after it and i don't think that you can take away from that whether there is a nintendo bump there isn't a nintendo bump spoiler alert there's definitely a nintendo bump um (laughs) i'm making that the official like conspiracy non-conspiracy theory of this podcast um but you know i don't think you can deny the impact that that game had i don't think you can deny that nintendo definitely made something special when they made ocarina of time um, but let me let me ask you a question, and this is something that I asked on the previous uh, tournament episode. Yeah. But I want to ask to you guys because I'm interested in, in hearing. You know, the Nintendo 64 is notorious for not having a ton of games. It, it, it doesn't even reach 300 in terms yep. of the games it has. And you have 10 million people owning a Nintendo 64, let's say mm-hmm. hypothetically in 1998. Mm-hmm. And they haven't gotten many games that year. And Zelda's supposed to be a pretty significant game. And there's a lot of hype around it. Yeah. I mean, you could pretty much count on having an almost one-to-one attached ratio yes. with this game. Absolutely. And so was this a product, you know, was the success, you know, in terms of sales of Ocarina of Time, a product of how few games there were on the Nintendo 64 and how starved for content, uh, you know, these people that had bought into the ecosystem of the Nintendo 64 had been? I think that you can uh, you for the sales numbers there's no doubt that the fact that there weren't that many big big system sellers on the console made it an easy buy for almost anybody who owned it. Like if you own a Nintendo 64, you probably need to get Ocarina of Time because it's 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 just a marquee franchise on a marquee system and you know that's just what's going to happen. I think you saw a similar thing with the Switch and Breath of the Wild. Obviously, not to as that a, a great as of an extent, but there was a lot of attach rate to that because it was the big game coming out at that time, and so people were like, "There's not a lot of a lot of stuff out right now. I'm definitely getting Ocarina of Time." Um, but I think when you see the reviews, I don't necessarily think the fact that that was one of the few games that people had meant that everybody was going to love it as universally as it is loved. I mean, if that was the case, Quest 64 would have had terrific reviews. Exactly. <laughs> that's not how it turned out. <laughs> and I but think there might think, have been Paul? a little bit of a, just a little bit of a feedback loop there where yeah. you've got people who 
purchased an N64, perhaps not entirely satisfied with it at this point because there aren't that many games. And then along comes Zelda. So perhaps they're a little bit more vocal in their enjoyment of Zelda because they have mm. to kind of justify that purchase of yeah. what was then the, the firmly the second place console. Mm. So, you know, maybe there's but a little bit also, of that too. But I will also argue for the flip side, which is that, you know, there were a ton of people that bought into the Nintendo 64 because they expected a continuation of the Super Nintendo. Yeah. And by this point in 1998, you arguably had possibly a lot of people that had been disappointed, had been burned by the Nintendo 64, and they may have said, you know what, to hell with this, I'm going to go PS1 because I get to play Final Fantasy VII, mm-hmm. and I get to play Tekken, and I get to play all these other games that are releasing almost every day. Um, and, you know, perhaps by this point, a lot of people had already tuned out. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps it's to their merit, you know, of Ocarina of Time that it really had a huge influence and impact, even though there may have been a ton of individuals that may have decided that that was it that they had seen enough yeah maybe maybe yeah yeah um and go ahead i I wanted to quickly ask both of you something because i kept and it's in relation to Baldur's gate i don't mean to sort of derail our ocarina conversation but i wanted to get paul's perspective on this (laughs) i kept seeing whenever i was reading about Baldur's gate i saw multiple times people saying like Baldur's Gate was essentially the computer RPG that sort of saved the genre. And, like, I don't know what your sort of interest level in that specific genre was, like computer RPGs like that, but do you think that's true? Like, do you think it was struggling that much before Baldur's Gate sort of came on the scene? That is 100% correct. Yeah, I would argue as well. There can be no doubt about it, because you had kind of a heyday around the release of Ultima 7. Mm -hmm. But you also had a steadily declining quality, specifically of Dungeons & Dragons RPGs. Mm -hmm. You know, they just did not evolve with the times. And quite frankly, they weren't really ever that good to begin with. You know, Eye of the Beholder was probably the high point for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the the computer RPG, like the D&D license was almost worthless at that point. And yeah, Baldur's Gate came around and just, I I can't, I can't overstate it, single-handedly resurrected that genre. You know, up until then you had, I think you had Fallout 2, which was Mm -hmm. popular, but you know, not that popular. Well, the first Fallout. um, Sorry, what was that, Ozzy? The first Fallout and I think Fallout 2 came out that year. Yeah, yeah. And it was popular, but like... Baldur's Gate really pushed the envelope. It really moved the genre forward. Up mm-hmm. and, th- and I, look, don't get me wrong. Something would eventually, right? Like that that's that's an inevitability, but as I've said before on this show, like someone had to be first. Yeah. And Baldur's Gate was not only first, but they they brought the big knife. They they brought the big knife to the fight. Like it mm-hmm. really advanced everything. Yeah. yeah and I, I let, let me just mention. I mean, you can attribute the decline in interest in the computer RPG to one game. And that was Doom. You know, as soon as Doom came out in 1993 or 94, one mm. of those years, um, the first person shooter became the genre that everyone wanted to experience on the PC. No doubt about it. No you know, and at this, at this point you had 3D accelerating cards, you know, you had the dedicated, you know, graphics card mm. and everyone was just pushing the graphical envelope everyone just wanted to give you know their very best 
you know, photorealistic quote-unquote experience. You had Unreal, which we talked about. You had Half-Life, mm-hmm. you know, but you had Quake as well. And you had all these games that were sucking up all the air of the PC arena. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that sense, where does a game like Baldur's Gate fit in? And really, were it not for Baldur's Gate... I think that you would not have seen other RPGs that came later, like Icewind Dale, like Dungeon Siege, etc. Planescape, Um, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, it it made it have a a new heyday from roughly 1998 to maybe 2003. And we would not see another interest in this until Project Eternity, um, you know, which was obsidians who were formerly black isle studios you know foray back into the isometric computer rpg um i I guess in this sense i mean let's let's go into the legacy and the genre defining and in that sense i want to play devil's advocate here because i guess i'm the host Mm -hmm. um and let me just ask so we saw that the computer rpg had uh, another moment in the sun with pillars of fraternity um, it also had other games like Tyranny. Obsidian has done a lot of work in trying to bring back the computer RPG. But mm-hmm. with Pillars of Fraternity 2, uh, Deadfire selling so poorly, you know, people are asking, is the computer RPG just obsolete? At least in the isometric sense. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to ask you, for example, Paul, in terms of Baldur's Gate and its legacy. Is this something that is kind of a time capsule? that had to be experienced, you know, from the perspective of the time that now is kind of interesting, you know, from, uh, let's just say, archaeological point of view, (laughs) but that doesn't really survive, you know, the game design principles of our contemporary era. It it depends on, it it depends, right? Like, at the time it was released, Baldur's Gate was was the real deal, right? Mm -hmm. There was, you know, there weren't games that looked that much better than it as opposed to now where you can release a Baldur's Gate clone like Divinity Original Sin or like you said Pillars of Eternity and you have myriad options that are photorealistic right like I think that you have a lot of people who played Baldur's Gate and they were teenagers and then 15 to 20 years later they're older and they pine for that time again and that's how projects like Pillars of Eternity get greenlighted and that's how they do well at first and then everybody's kind of had their fill and mm-hmm. you get diminishing returns and then maybe in 20 years we'll see it again mm-hmm. right but yeah. I think I think that's what happened you know I'm not an expert but I have a podcast <laughs> so that kind of makes you an expert by course. Yeah. you have a microphone so clearly yeah, you know exactly. what you're talking about what do you think Arnie I think I think there's there's something to that. I think that like like any genre, I think computer RPGs need to sort of continue evolving, continue getting with the times. Like what worked back then doesn't necessarily work now, but I don't think that's something that's exclusive to that genre. Um and so like if if you're asking me like if sitting down to play Baldur's Gate today is going to be rough, I'd say maybe. I think it depends on your 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 tolerance for certain things. Like like you said, you sort of tried it, you bounced off of it, um, because there is that sort of inaccessibility that was sort of built into that game back then. Um, 
but yeah, I think I think it's going to depend. I think it's going to depend on the person. Um, but obviously, like if they were to make a new game in that vein, I think that there's definitely things that they need to update. They need to streamline. They can't just keep sort of sitting in that niche and thinking because it worked then, it's going to work now. And in that sense, I mean, there are a lot of strands of DNA that made its way into other games, but there are also strands of his DNA that just kind of were eventually improved upon. So Mm -hmm. one of those was, for example, just the large amount of text exposition that you would get (laughs) in Baldur's Gate. I mean, really playing these games is almost like reading a novel. You know, a lot of it you have to really bring, you know, on your own. You're not necessarily going to get, uh, you know, you're not going to get cutscenes, for example, Mm -hmm. which is something that we're accustomed to. And... I think that's very jarring nowadays because nowadays you get, you know, you get more of a filmic influence where you receive information and exposition through a very diegetic and very natural context sensitive, you know, manner, whereas Baldur's Gate just kind of dumps a ton of information at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the elements that has been improved upon, particularly, I mean, in Bioware games like Mass Effect, et cetera, yeah. I mean, that you can basically learn as much as you want to learn, you know, from, you know, the world, but it's not necessarily required out of you that you essentially read over <laughs> 20,000 pages worth of dialogue. Yeah. Um, you know, essentially the scripts for this game are several war and peace, you know, <laughs> novels. I think it's 800,000 words. Yeah. It's insane. It's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely bonkers. insane. Yeah. I mean, and when you think about, just the the massive feat that it must have taken to just write all of this. I mean, oh, it's yeah. it's really a testament to how interested in this setting, you know, these developers at Bioware were. So, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of you know the narrative choices, you know, I think you know, and Paul, I want to hear your thoughts on this. I think this is the game that really established the idea of you know you can shape your character to be who you want them to be. Do you yeah. do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yes, okay, yes to a point, right? The, mm-hmm. the thing is, you have the Ultima games that came before, where you can play good or play evil, and so on and so forth. But as a general rule in Ultima, you know, you, you gotta you gotta be good, mm-hmm. right? You can be evil, but you you kind of have to be good to finish the game, progress, and so on and so forth. Especially like Ultima Four, for example. Anyhow, with that said, Baldur's Gate you know, a little bit more freedom in that regard. You can play bad, you can play good, and Planescape Torment then built on top of that even further. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it really is kind of the, if not the originator, definitely popularized that kind of that kind of gameplay. Yeah. I, I remember when I was doing research for this episode, um, I was watching somebody's like sort of retrospective on on Baldur's Gate and one of the things they mentioned that I thought was super cool was they had this experience where basically they were playing an evil character and they had sort of an evil party quote unquote um but they tried to recruit a new party member that was a different alignment they were good and initially they had no problem the character joined the party as you would like in like games like Mass Effect you can pretty much have anybody join your party regardless of how good or evil you are I think Um, But eventually, that good character ended up killing one of his other party members. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, the fact that, like, 
they don't just blindly they don't just have like the facade of an alignment like it's not like i'm the good guy and then like if you make them do evil shit like they're still okay with it like they actually have some depth to them as characters and like they interact and they have you know their sort of back and forth and i thought that was really cool yeah, and your decisions impact your party. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that really is important. And I think to this day, it's not really seen a lot. Um, I think that nowadays, because developers are so wary of blocking out content, you know, maybe you get like a slap on the wrist, like, hey, man, that wasn't cool. You know, <laughs> why did you exterminate an entire race? Yeah. Um, you know, but okay, well, I'm going to keep adventuring with you just because I don't have anything better to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's but- the other thing, too. It's like, you can either be the goodest good person that's ever gooded or you can be like hitler <laughs> there's no there's no real in between in in like a lot of this stuff and i think yeah. i don't necessarily think baldur's gate has like a lot of levels like that but the fact that it's not only your alignment that matters but like also the people around you's alignment that gives it a little bit more depth yeah but then switching on to ocarina of time i mean we have moved on from the reception i mean mm-hmm. and you know, is there anything else that can be said about Ocarina of Time and the impact on the genre and its legacy? I mean, I think at this point, you almost have to take a contrarian perspective <laughs> just because so much positive, you know, perspectives have been provided on that game. Yeah, and like so, it's I don't think we honestly I don't think we need to take too much time on this. Right. Like here. Look, here it is. Baldur's Gate influenced, you know, games like Dragon Age, like Knights of the Old Republic, Mass mm-hmm. Effect. And going into today, you know, you have this sort of mini resurrection of a very niche genre, which is like the isometric RPG that's modeled on Baldur's Gate. And then you have Ocarina, and it directly influenced virtually every AAA game of the year. Can't Like, if you're a publisher, you want a third-person AAA-developed game to be your flagship, to be your tentpole, right? Mm-hmm. You want your Assassin's Creed. You want um you know your dark souls you want red dead this this can all be traced back to ocarina not to mention breath of the wild i don't know is there any more to add than that yeah i mean i i now i'm curious about your pitch paul about how ocarina of time influenced fifa 2000 Because you well, virtually said all AAA games, essentially. Everything. <laughs> well, no, come on, man. EA Sports <laughs> games aren't considered AAA. That, that's a whole other. That's a whole other ball of wax. Yes. No, I'm talking about like legit perennial games. Oh, of the year, so FIFA's not legit. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Screw <laughs> FIFA. Sorry, sorry, Banya. Uh, but FIFA, no, it's had its it's had its day. Pro Evo all the way. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, what uh, do you think, Carney? I mean, what can you say about Ocarina of Time? Give me something fresh. Give me something new, buddy. Nintendo did a good. Daddy Miyamoto gifted us this beautiful, beautiful flower, and we watered it, and it grew into a great oak tree. <laughs> I've, got oh, new. <laughs> I, I've, I've got something new. I've got something new. It's so hard about, to talk about, about this game. This. Please, go for it. How about this? And again, I haven't heard our previous Ocarina episode, so it's possible somebody already mentioned this. Mm. But here's another thing that I think Ocarina did that maybe is underrated, which is it gave us it gave us probably the world's most popular, you know, Harry Potter notwithstanding, the world's most popular modern fairy tale. Like the the symbolism in Zelda is 
universally known, and mm-hmm. that's probably by design. You know, everybody knows what the Triforce is and what it stands for. You have like the ocarina itself. Mm-hmm. There, there's so much symbolism, so many symbols used in that game, and I think Nintendo knew exactly what they were doing with that, and you know, sort of crafted or built on what is mm-hmm. essentially like the modern fairy tale. That's that's my opinion anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's how fables essentially are told in this modern context. You know, yeah. it is through games, etc. And mm-hmm. Zelda takes a lot of tropes, you know, of fairy tales and, you know, turns them into its very own thing. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, Link is an elf, but you're not quite thinking Legolas elf, you know, when you see Link. I no. mean, and it is a very, you know, childhood friendly, you know, telling of a fairy tale. And I mm-hmm. think you're right with respect to that. It's it's a timeless tale, um, you know, retold over and over again of good versus evil and the cyclical nature of good versus evil, you know, but it's presented in a manner that, you know, kids can relate to and I think also Ocarina of Time does something which is that it's a it's a Bildungsroman, you know, that genre of coming of age tale, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, where you have Link coming into his own and fulfilling his destiny and you start playing with him as a kid um, and he kind of sees what the future will hold for him and eventually you get to play with him as a, as a teenager. I mean, not quite an adult, but as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I think for kids back in the day, you know, that they may have been 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. to be able to go through that progression, you know, that gives you this growth was very meaningful. And yep. I think that's probably a huge reason why this game holds such a special place in people's heart, because it was a coming of age tale. You know, it was kind of like the catcher in the rye for earlier generations. You know, it was that game that made you feel like, okay, there's going to be a point in my life where I'm going to have to make big decisions mm. and the stakes are going to be higher. And I basically have to, to use a cliche, believe in myself in order to overcome these difficulties. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I think that that really impacts the nostalgia of Ocarina of Time quite a bit. Besides the fantastic music, which is oh, yes. intertwined with this game. Yeah. yeah uh, it's it's impossible to not talk about this game without thinking about the music and mm-hmm. without having the music come to mind. Um, yeah. I think the Kaji Kondo and the rest of the composers really did a bang up job with this game and they're yeah. still timeless. I mean, you have the traditional Zelda songs, you know, like the overworld theme essentially and, um, you know, the, the, the main theme. But Ocarina of Time was really the game where you had a lot of, you know, a lot of the songs and tunes that have mm-hmm. become you know, legendary in, you know, the Ocarina of Time uh, and in the Zelda stable, yeah. um, you know, things like Gerudo Valley, you know, which is kind of a very flamenco influenced track, um, you know, the the Hyrule Field track, um, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. They're songs that are played in concerts every single year and they're remixed and covered by tons of people on YouTube. I mean, it's it's huge. It's been a huge influence to so many different gamers, you know, around the world. Yeah, I think that that was one thing that I that I'm glad you brought up because I I wanted to mention that as well is that Nintendo did something very smart in making music and musicality a mechanic in that game because yeah. when I think of Ocarina of Time, 
one of the first things I always think of is the actual ocarina and like playing the song of time, playing upon a song, like stuff like that, like really gets stuck in my brain. And that's sort of what I most fondly remember about that game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's not a lot more that can be said about ocarina. I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's huge. I mean, I think as, as Paul mentioned, the difference is that ocarina saw its influence spread across almost every genre. Whereas Baldur's Gate saw its influence kind of spread to a very particular type of game. Yeah. And I think it's it's significant in that sense. But, you know, here Ocarina, you know, clearly gets the nod. Mm-hmm. So with that said, let's take a break and let's uh, finish it out with putting these games head to head, which we kind of have been doing, but just kind of seeing how they stack up, you know, in a modern context. So we'll be back. Alright guys, and we are back, and let's just uh, round it out. Um, and I think really there's not a lot more that we can say, so let's just talk about which games you know we would rather play nowadays. I mean, which game has really survived the test of time best? Um, so Arnie, let me start off with you. You know, if you were put with these two games on a desert island, which one would you say this is the one that I'm gonna stick with? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak from the heart. And I'm not trying to be a contrarian, but I think it would be Baldur's Gate. It, given the choice between the two, I think that there, I think there's more meat on that bone that I am okay with sort of taking the time to figure out with Baldur's Gate. Zelda's amazing. I would love to play it. I still have to play it. But given the choice between the two today, like 28-year-old Arnie would, would rather play Baldur's Gate, I think. What do you think, Paul? It's a really interesting question because here, so here's the thing here. I, I choose to interpret it sort of in a different context, mm-hmm. which is that my original gut reaction was, yeah, I'd rather play Baldur's Gate. I'm an RPG guy. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of my, my, my bag. Like it's, these are the games that I play every single year and I don't get tired of. Mm-hmm. But when I think of, you know, 2017, when Breath of the Wild came out, at that time, I also tried playing Divinity Original Sin, which yeah. is, for all intents and purposes, a Baldur's Gate clone. Mm-hmm. And the sheer amount of text in, Divi- <laughs> in Divinity Original Sin, like, I just could not handle it. Yeah. And Breath of the Wild was a joy. Mm-hmm. So, like, would I really rather play Baldur's Gate today? I, I actually don't know. I think maybe I'd rather play Ocarina, but at the same time, I hear myself saying that out loud, and I'm like... Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm with you on that. I mean, I think that in theory, Baldur's Gate seems like the game that you would want to play. But mm-hmm. in practice, when you actually go into it, it's like, I don't know if I feel very good with playing this nowadays. It's just we have come so far in kind of streamlining yeah. and making this a lot more accessible nowadays that just the sheer amount of effort that it takes in order to get into this game mm-hmm really kind of leads to a repellent effect. Yeah. Um, and I well, think it might... Well, for you, Ozzy, Baldur's Gate just got a re-release on all major consoles in October. So yes. you yeah. definitely yeah. go play it. 
Yeah, we had to mention that. I mean, last October, <laughs> there's it something in the water, every, man. All these, all these '98 games, they're are coming back. back. <laughs> but every console, every console received, including the Switch, received yep. you know these uh, Infinity Engine games, and That's so. Right. It's massive because we never expected these games to ever be released on a console, but lo and behold, they did. Um, but I think, you know, even with my sometimes ambivalent thoughts about Ocarina of Time, mm-hmm. I think that there's such a whimsy and charm to Ocarina of Time that remains, God, I hate to say this, timeless, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, I, I, I knew it, I saw it, and I was like, I, I just have to go through with it. But... <laughs> Yeah, I think that Ocarina of Time still remains one game that, yes, it's it's kind of a little bit quaint nowadays. The world feels a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. but it's still a fantastic experience when you play it nowadays. And it's still a game that, again, like I said, if you let it come over you, mm-hmm. I still think that it's a very worthwhile experience. And so if I really had to come down to it, I... I don't think there's any question. I would prefer to play Ocarina of Time rather than Baldur's Gate. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that I really have the time of day for Baldur's Gate anymore. And yeah. I think that, like a lot of other games, you know, it's off its time. You really had to experience it with 1998 goggles. And mm-hmm. I think in that sense, there's no way that it would get the nod over Ocarina. So I guess with that having been said... I guess we can just kind of tally and see where things fall. I mean, in terms of personal attachment, I don't think that, you know, I, I think that, what what do you think, Paul? Do you think this game, any any of these games get the nod over the other, you know, in terms of personal attachment? Like, I mean, me personally, I'm attached more to Baldur's Gate. You know, Ocarina, like I said, I played for, you know, less than 10 hours. Whereas Baldur's Gate, you know, I loved Torment. I loved I Neverwinter Nights. You know, mm-hmm. I loved those games at the time until eventually I didn't. Right. Yeah. So, you know, for for me, I, I'm more personally attached to Baldur's Gate. You know, yeah. we, we can take that as we will. What do you think, Connie? Uh, no question. M- more attached to Ocarina. Um, it it's very intertwined with some very good memories I have of my childhood, just watching, you know, my friend play it at the time, um, the music, the visuals, all that stuff. Uh, it just harkens back to a time that I'm really fond of. So it's Ocarina, no doubt. Yeah. Same for me with Ocarina. I think that even though I was a PlayStation guy, I just couldn't ignore how big Ocarina was. And, Secretly, I was a little bit jealous of everyone because <laughs> I kind of wanted to see what that water temple was all about. I see. That I kept you buried it about. at the end of the episode, so people that don't listen this far will never find out the truth. Never, never, ever <laughs> find out the truth that I was really a closet Ocarina fan. Um, in terms of reception, I mean, there's no question Ocarina just yeah. absolutely blows Baldur's Gate out of the water. There's really no two ways about it. Mm-hmm. In terms of impact on the genre and legacy, again... You know, Baldur's Gate is very good. It has a very good legacy, but come on, Ocarina just is a massive, massive behemoth. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of head-to-head, which one would we rather play? We just went over it. Uh, Arnie, you're the contrarian. You said Baldur's Gate. <laughs> I, I enjoy think, torturing myself on a daily basis. Paul and I uh, both said Ocarina of Time. And if I still you were can't going, believe I said it. I, I, yeah. I'm sitting here and I'm like, really? Did I just say that? Because as recently as the beginning of the episode, I was I was like, I knew this question was coming and I knew my answer was going to be Baldur's Gate and it wasn't even close. But yeah, like, boy, Divinity Original Sin really 
freaking turned me <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, so if we were going just by the metrics, um, I think that there's no question that Ocarina of Time would go forward. So yeah. I guess it comes down to this. Should I go forward, guys? Of course. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't want to say it, but yeah. I say yes. So, yes. <laughs> yes. So, it's an unanimous yes. It's a 3 uh, squash. I'm Arnie's sorry, Baldur's like, Non-committal noise is a yes. I know. Yes. Well, it's just like, I, I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I love Ocarina of Time. I think that it's one of the greatest games ever. But it's it's... It's funny, like a lot of these games that I didn't know that much about, when I start digging into them and I start researching them, I'm like, damn, I'm like really starting to get into this now. And so it's it's a shame that like Baldur's Gate doesn't get to have a little more airtime. Yeah, yeah, but know, you're not you're I not know. gonna screw this up, Arnie. So. <laughs> it's how I feel about StarCraft, that that little underdog that Yeah, you know, it was such an under it needed more time in the sun. It really did. Yeah, it died too soon. <laughs> I wonder but how the that juggernaut came to man, pass. Grim Fandango, it's just like you, right. know, you just can't beat it. Plowing yeah, away. Yeah. Well, let's give a, a warm goodbye. Let's put it on a ship and give it a funeral pyre as it deserves. Um by Baldur's Gate, you know, you were able to advance, you took down Tekken 3, you did your best, you were never really, you know, in a position to take down Ocarina of Time, unfortunately. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but taking down Tekken 3 is an accomplishment in and of itself. I'll, I'll... Abs- absolutely, it was touch and go there for a moment, so oh I, I think that it deserves it deserves special mention and recognition for what it actually did in getting yep. to the round of eight. I'm so, actually glad I wasn't on the Tekken 3 episodes so you guys could hear me dismantle it. So <laughs> I'm glad that everything worked out for the best without my involvement. Yes, yes, but we ended up giving both games a fair shot, so I'm glad that we were able to be objective um, yeah, as we usually are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, goodbye, Baldur's Gate. And Ocarina of Time, you have gone on to the semifinals, so... Next one, it's going to be difficult. So it's getting really, really to the nail-biting phase. And we are a little bit ambivalent about Ocarina of Time. So this might be quite interesting in the next round. (laughs) Certainly will. Certainly will. Yeah. So... With that having said, guys, uh, if you enjoyed this, please make sure to subscribe. Please make sure to give us a review again. You know what? You know, it's not even to help us grow. We just really, really, really feel good when we get a new review. I mean, <laughs> it just should see us. We're like kids on Christmas. You know, Arnie's like, oh, guys, we got a new review. And I someone know. hopefully says something good. We yeah. still haven't gotten anyone that says something exceedingly bad. I don't I'm, think that. I'm running out of family members I can convince to give us anonymous reviews. <laughs> so I'd really appreciate it if somebody stepped up to bat for me. Yeah, I, you know, me... like at this point, if you're giving if you're giving Joe Rogan a review, he doesn't care. Okay, like he's done. He's got. It his It would reviews. just be a drop he of water them. in the sea. You know, for us, it will be a tsunami. You know, just to give us a review. You know, so don't make it a drop of water. Make it a tsunami. An oasis um, in the desert that is the Apple Podcast uh, yes, landscape. Yes, I'm not gonna say how many reviews because Paul basically shied at me for that last time but <laughs> we're still not at the level where i want to be yeah and let's you let's, know, let's make a realistic goal uh 500 reviews within the next like two weeks 
Shut up, Arnie. <laughs> just, <laughs> just shut up, Arnie. Um, but yeah, seriously, guy. And if you if you want to talk to us more about it, if you think that we completely screwed up and Baldur's Gate should have really advanced, please let us know. We really want to have this discussion. We really yeah. want to have this argument on the internet with people that we barely know. Um, <laughs> it's really what we live for. It's really what the internet was made for. So just let us know. You know, we have a website, regionfreegamers.com. We're going to be posting up, you know, a write-up about... Baldur's Gate and Ocarina of Time and see mm-hmm. how they compare against each other, you know, in a more journalistic, quote-unquote fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have Twitter, Region Free Gamer, because Twitter yeah. doesn't give us too many options. That's and right. of course, you know, we kind of grew out of the Instagram community, so we're on Instagram, Region Free Gamers Podcast. That's probably the best way to reach us to be quite frank because no, arnie no. is usually there helming uh the the instagram and yep. that's usually how we communicate with our audience so definitely make sure to give us a uh hit us up sign into our dms you know <laughs> yes. whenever you want yeah um, if you're old you can also email us but who would ever do that we <laughs> check our emails we we are old so we check our emails yeah um but this has been another episode of the Region Free Gamers podcast, particularly the King of Games 98. Uh, right. This is super fun. You know, we are kind of hitting the home stretch now. So uh, we really look forward to rounding this out and seeing how everyone feels about our conclusions. So with that having been said, thank you so much for joining us, guys. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>